Okay, good evening everyone. Good evening. Good evening, good evening. We are broadcasting live August 12th. Today's quote is again about teaching. There's kind of a theme going on. Maybe he does month themes. Um, anyway, the past few have been all about teaching. This one's on how difficult it is to teach. So the Buddha remarks in regards to Ananda's uh, observation. It's an interesting response because he doesn't he doesn't actually address whether the monk who's teaching is doing a good job. Yesterday's was all about praise, but today's it's almost as if he may not have much positive to say about this uh, monk's teaching. But I think more more importantly, he just has a different lesson to teach, and his lesson to teach on this one is a reminder of how difficult it is to teach and the right frame of mind we should put ourselves in if we're going to teach. I mean, actually, things I've been saying the past few days, not we shouldn't teach uh, shouldn't teach for gain. Shouldn't shouldn't speak in dispraise of yourself or others. This is an interesting thing that I always think of. That when I when I think of this quote, this is the part I re remember most. Is atanancha uh, parancha anupahaja. I will not. Um, I will not um, denigrate myself or others. And this is a common fault of teachers. Or it, we fall into this. And so it was um, telling to, to, to learn that this isn't something the Buddha recommends to, I mean, to, to speak poorly of yourself. Sometimes uh, uh, in speaking, we will try to ingratiate ourselves with the audience by um, saying something bad about ourselves. You know, to say, Oh, I'm such this, I'm such that, I do it. I mean, this is something that is uh, problematic in teaching. I mean, if, if given in a joke, it can be okay, but it often is used as, it's kind of tricky, you know, used as a means of ingratiating oneself with the audience. Oh, he's so humble, or, or making people feel like you're more uh, approachable, maybe. Um, but it's problematic because it, it, First of all, the sneakiness, the sort of the underhandedness of it, but moreover, the how it it, it takes away the severity of what you're saying. If you it uh, puts you in a, in a sense too much in the picture, you know, it's about you then, and no longer about the dhamma. The other one is when you denigrate others, when you speak poorly of others. That's another way of ingratiating yourself with people. Good way to make yourself look better. Yeah, just to put other people down. And that's, uh, of course, unwholesome. Putting yourself down, you could consider it to be unwholesome directly as well. But it, that's uh, something to keep in mind. Is the, the advice of the Buddha is not to harm, not to speak, uh, denigrating yourself or denigrating others. Speaking with kindness. Speaking with a mean, as a means to gain is also quite difficult because it's easy to, um, for a speaker, 
I had a student uh, who uh, t teaches. Yeah, he's a layperson, and he does life counseling or something like that, training people to achieve their dreams. And uh, we were talking about this this idea of teaching for money, and he said it's really awful because he could be totally sincere and focused on uh, on, on the teaching, but no one would would come to his seminars or he wouldn't be able to sell his packages you know if he was just letting it go and and really concentrating on the teaching itself he would never make money he wouldn't be able to do it so he has to push his product he has to find ways of speaking that encourage people to um, sign up for seminars or this or that and it feels of course unpleasant but you know people he said people will come up to me afterwards and say, you know, it's great, but, you know, I felt like you were a little bit pushy there. And, and he understands that, but the, the facts are the facts that if he doesn't do that, he can't make money. And that idea is, is the sole, the, the main reason for, for never charging for the Dhamma, for never having even, for, for charging for a course or even having a suggested donation. <clears throat> even saying that courses are by donation how can something be by donation right i mean it's it's a misuse of the word but the meaning is uh pay as much as you can which could be zero but it's not really a donation i mean a donation is is a gift that is um not in return for anything right without any mm, uh, what do you call recompensation, re or uh, without any sense of being a payment of a debt? You know, a donation is something given free and clear. It could be out of gratitude, but no further than that. So, so this is the reason for. But but even still, you see, even talking about this for myself, the question is, you have to ask yourself is. Is he pushing me to, you know, does he want me to give him something? And obviously, there's nothing to give here. This is all free and online. But uh, it's, it's something, as Buddha said, is very difficult because it's easy to fall into. And you see people falling so desperately into this. They start off fine, but in the end, it's all about making money. And it's all about, and, and sometimes it's with a good, to a good end, it's to keep going, you know. We can't continue. We had a monastery in... Uh, in Thailand, well, we didn't have. I've never really had a monastery. <laughs> we're trying, we're working on it. But um, I was at a monastery in Thailand. What I was um, after Doi Sutep. Let me think. After I left Doi Sutep, I went back down to Jom Tong. It was just too much for me. I felt like I was a young monk, and look, I can't survive up here. It was great. We were teaching so many people, but. It was hard on me, I felt. And so they, they, the head monk, he wanted me to stay. You know, even I, I, I caused some trouble. We, uh, anyway, don't go into it. But uh, in the end, he said, you know, stay, stay. And uh, or it was actually, I went back to visit him and he said, come back, which is, you know, really hard for him to do because he's such a, he was a really fairly important monk and he's, you don't really refuse him. And I refused him. I said, I really just want to stay with my teacher. And he got upset at me. He said, fine, then stay with your teacher until you're 10 years a monk. I was only four years a monk at the time. 
And then I went back to Jamtong. But Jamtong was difficult because at this time, after seeing all this corruption, I decided not to use money anymore. And that was made it difficult to stay at Jamtong where they all use money. So then I decided to go off into the forest. And I told my teacher that I was intending to go on Tudong, which is this practice. It's a corruption of the word Dutanga, where it originally meant you keep specific practices. It still does, but in Thailand it's evolved to mean wandering. So I had the idea of just not having my own monastery, but just wandering, you know, worrying about myself. And as soon as, I don't know if he could read my mind or, or not, but even before I had explained my plan, he was already putting his foot down and he said, you're going, so I said, I, I was thinking I'm going to go spend the night at this monastery, forest monastery where we had spent the night. I'm going to go visit there. And he said, yes, you stay there. And he said, you, I want you to stay there and, and teach there. And so that was that. I went there and I stayed there, but it had a head monk. And he said that, well, the head monk can teach Thai people, you teach Western people. So we had set up this center to teach, and it was nice for a while. We had some kutis, and the head monk let us use them, and it eventually blew up. But um, when it was good, it was it was pretty good. There were a lot of mosquitoes there, but we had mosquito nets around our kutis. I was staying in a in actually Ajahn Tong's kuti. They had built this kuti, I think built it for him or they dedicated it to him or eventually they gave it to him uh, specifically for Ajahn Tong and he ended up not staying there because it was, well, he got old. Um, but it was this little wooden room and then a big, big wooden platform all mosquito netted in. So you're living in the forest and you have this large mosquito net area and it was great. I just lived there. I didn't even, well, in the winter I would sleep in a little room, but mainly I would be outside, and uh, that was a pretty neat place. They had monitor lizards there, these big lizards. I never saw one. I saw them in Sri Lanka, and snakes, snakes that were dangerous, poisonous snakes and scorpions, but it was a great place. I don't know why I was telling this story now. What, what, what was my point? Uh, not the the donation thing. So, um, we the problem we one problem we had was we were trying to do this all on our own. I had the nun who had been helping at Doisetab. She came and was helping there as well. And the two of us were running this place. She's this Burmese woman who's uh, awesome meditator, older older woman, and uh, she looked after the meditators. She she cooked and did a lot really too much in the end but uh, she came the, the story is that um, we we're having trouble with with getting food for the meditators you know she she was making awesome food awesome vegetarian food but it wasn't free you know so she had to go and 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 needed to use money now being off in the forest there was not many people coming locally to support and those who did support went to the head monk and and he wasn't giving us any support. We didn't expect any from him. Um, but at one point, we'd had no money, and she came to me, and she said, uh, we have no money. We, she said, I think we have to ask the meditators for donations, because otherwise we can't do it. And uh, it eventually got, in the beginning, I guess it was a suggestion, 
but eventually she demanded, she insisted, she said, we have to, if we don't get money, then we'll have to shut down. And I said, I looked at her and I said, then we'll shut down. And she was very upset about that. No, not very upset. She's a very good meditator. But she and shook her head and walked away. That day someone donated, without any without any instigation, donated uh, about 3,000 baht or something like that, gave to her some money. And uh, we never, the point was, we never ran out of money. Um, and there, it was difficult at times. But that sentiment to me is important. That if if you need money to keep it going, hmm, then from a Buddhist monk point of view, I mean, the, the point of view of a Buddhist monk is that it shouldn't be doing it, right? Um, of course, monks don't touch money, but you could extrapolate that. If my doing this requires me to go out of my way to 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 get support, then um, shouldn't be doing it. Hmm. So here we have this situation uh, of we're, we're setting up a monastery in uh, near McMaster University. So uh, we've opened it up and people can support, but totally not pushing it. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing no matter what, uh, but this is a chance for us to do more and there are benefits. So we've put them out there. And if the support comes, we'll do it. If it doesn't come, we're not going to we're not going to go looking for support. Anyway, anyway, off track. But uh, it was about the the it was on the line of of how difficult it is. It's difficult to teach properly. It's very easy if you're a business person or if you're um, a, a con artist or if you're charismatic and teaching through charisma, I know teachers who don't have much knowledge of the Dhamma and from you know may not even be very wise, but are charismatic and can convince their students to practice. And that can be useful to an extent. If you're charismatic and you're able to give faith to your your students, you know this is how evangelic uh, evangelists do it often just by by charisma i've talked with them and you can see it i mean their faith isn't even that strong there was that story about that huge that guy in america who was just this number one and then it turned out he was he, he got charged with for prostitution or something like that um, but the charisma and they use the charisma to teach and that's dangerous I mean, it's much easier, though. Hmm? It's much more difficult to to do it for pure, pure reasons. So that that is this teaching, something we should keep in mind. If you're thinking to teach something, you should always reflect back upon. Am I doing this for the right reasons? And catch yourself and stop yourself. doesn't mean you should stop teaching if you're not. It means you should adjust. doesn't mean you're going to be perfect, but this is a guideline. I'm a very good one at that. Speaking of difficult to teach, tomorrow I have to fly to British Columbia. Big news. I've known about it for a while, but I hadn't announced it, I don't think. So I have to take a plane to Montreal and then Vancouver. Don't ask me why, but it's I'm <laughs> sightseeing. So if there's anyone in Montreal who wants to visit the Montreal airport, 
Um, I'll be there for a couple hours tomorrow. And then back to British Columbia. But the point is, I'm not entirely sure I'll make it in time. I think I will. I think it arrives. Arrive. Huh. Looks like the times have changed. I mean, it's supposed to arrive at 7, 6 or 7. So... So I should be there in plenty of time, provided they have internet set up. I'll just bring, I have a notebook computer, I'll bring that and set up. But yeah, this is um, teaching. I'm not sure if I'll be doing this again. We'll have to see, but there's a really nice group in British Columbia. It's a Sri Lankan monastery, and they've invited me once before, and they've got a large community. And they really want, they wanted me to go and live there, really. I think if I was willing to stay with them, they would invite me to live there. But, you know, monks with different ideas. There's monks living there already, and they have their own practices and their own ways. But they're very kind, very very friendly. So visiting is nice. Uh, but yeah, you'll, so I'll be in a different place. Hopefully it'll be the same setup. You'll just have a different background. But... Um, and we'll see about Pali, probably the same thing. Shouldn't be a problem. Their internet there I don't think is so good, so I have to take it, see it as it goes. See how it goes. Anyway, that's enough gab. Anybody got any questions? Robin? I have a question. If, sure. Or do we have questions okay. up here? No, you get priority. Go for it. Okay. When you read... Um, Mahasi Sayadaw, he always makes a point to say to note an intention before you move, you know, note the intention to stand or to sit. And yeah. I wasn't sure if you suggested that as well. Yeah, not as often, uh, not to everyone. Um, but yeah, we usually mention it. Uh, I find that Ajahn Tong doesn't emphasize it too much. When we emphasize it, and you, this is when you're taking the teacher course, you'll understand the sort of the stages, but when we emphasize it when a meditator enters the second stage of knowledge, if they're having trouble with it or if it's not clear that they're seeing it. If they're clearly seeing it, you often don't have to mention it. But it's a good way of helping the meditator see cause and effect. So it's useful. But yeah, it's something that you should should do. Something that uh, is worth acknowledging. Okay, thank you, Bhante. What is the reason for doing walking meditation before sitting meditation? The main reason is that walking meditation has, the Buddha says, the, the concentration that arises from walking meditation lasts a long time. This is a direct quote from the Buddha. So the idea being that it it extends into the, the sitting. It's not so much that it's done beforehand. It wouldn't be awful if you started with sitting. It, it just... There's a benefit from the walking that leads into the sitting. You know, walking meditation charges you up, and so by the time you're sitting, you, you've, you're in a different state from when you started walking. So the sitting is more powerful and more beneficial. That's the theory. 
Sometimes when I meditate, I feel like one half of my mind is reluctant to work. How should I interpret that? There's no halves. Mind is mind. It arises and ceases. So you have to be clear. You're, you're, you're the, the, the terminology has to be precise. So what that means is sometimes there arises an aversion to work. So when that arises, that's an experience. It's based on dosa, anger, and you should acknowledge it. Disliking, disliking. Don't worry about your practice. Don't. The problem is we tend to think of things as entities. So we have the practice and we have the mind. This isn't, these don't exist. Forget about those. You're not practicing. You're not, you're not doing a half an hour or an hour or whatever. You have one moment now. And in this moment, what is happening? That's what you have to concern yourself with. And that's all. Don't worry about, is it proper that I, you know, force myself to do this? Or do I have legitimate reason not to want to do this? There's no this. There's only the, the aversion. Focus on that. Simon, Simon is asking for you to tell more about the Sunday meeting. <coughs> which, which is that... Is the, Simon, is that the uh, the Sunday study group with the Vasudhimaga and Pali study group that you're asking about? Or does he mean the organizational meeting, volunteer meeting? The volunteer meeting? Type something in so we know what you mean. And Someone's in Victoria, BC. Uh, I don't know. I think I'm going to Surrey. So I don't know how far that is from... If you look up the, what's it called, the BC, hmm, I don't know what it's called, I guess. British Columbia, the something Wihara. Look up Wihara, British Columbia, and you'll find it. Let's see. Can you speak on homosexuality and Buddhism? I sure can. BBS.org. That's it. That's where I'll be staying. Oh, they have a nice website. Am I on their website? Nope. What was last year? Schedule special events. I'm probably not even on their special. I'm hurt. Not on their special events list. That's a shame. Mm. I mean, it's a bit embarrassing here. I was going to show off to all of you. Just kidding. It's all good. But yeah, bvs.org, if you want to come out, that's where I'll be until Monday. Monday I'll be back in the evening. Oh, is Aruna is one of my one of the people I guess. Aruna, tell ask them why I'm not on their website. Now the problem is monks and technology often don't mix. So often they have a hard time updating these things. Anyway, it's not it's not any benefit to me. It's just to be useful for people who want to come. And I'm not even sure what I'll be doing actually. I assume we'll be doing meditation courses. I think Saturday, Sunday we'll have meditation courses. Probably Sunday they want me to teach at the Dhamma school for little kids. So they got a room full of 
room full. There's nothing quite like a room full of small children staring up at you. So it's one of the one of life's scariest things, I think. Well, it's intimidating. I think I actually remember pictures you posted from last year. There was this room. There were so many kids in that room. They were packed in. <laughs> packed, really packed. That's awesome. But they were good. A great group. You know, it's it's intimidating, but Sri Lankan kids are pretty awesome. I mean, they're all Canadian kids, but they have Sri Lankan parents, most of them. There's this one kid in uh, Manitoba who was really awesome, Tarindu. Tarindu is this little boy. He looks like he's, he's a little bit chubby, but number one meditator. He's only about seven or eight. Wow. Six, six maybe, but awesome. Must have been something in his past life. So his mother brought him to me and we talked, and she's an awesome meditator as well. Their whole family is pretty awesome. But he, this little kid, he's... Uh, Something special. That's what you get when you have a Buddhist culture. You know, when your society is Buddhist and you have the whole culture is Buddhist, you get these beings who uh, somehow are, are far more powerful than those of us who are born-again Buddhists or, you know, late-comer Buddhists. We're, we're struggling. We struggle fresh, but these... There are people who have cultivated this for lifetimes and they have this power to them. That's something you see much more in countries like Sri Lanka. A lady that I, I sit with at Wat Lao sometimes, she showed me a little video of her grandson. He's so small, he's, he's like a year and a half old and he goes into the room and he, he bows down in front of the Buddha and everything. It's so cute and he's so hmm. little. He does it all the time. <laughs> That's the thing. I mean, kids are malleable. If you teach them whatever you teach them, they she said they really didn't they even they didn't even teach him that. He just he does it. They think he's really special. Hmm. Okay, someone's asking about homose. Uh, what time can we wait? Okay, yes. Can you speak on homosexuality and Buddhism? There's not much to say. Um, I've actually done videos on it. So what is homosexuality? Well, sex is unwholesome. Having the desire for sex is desire, so it's unwholesome. There's a good, I think we had good answers to this on Stack Exchange. If you go to buddhism.stackexchange.com, you find lots of, uh... Robin, could you type that in for everybody? Sure. Robin's an avid user. Actually, I want to ask Robin if she'll take my place as moderator. Oh, no way. <laughs> Come on. I'm not really moderating anymore. And you're you're a great gonna... moderator. and Yeah, but I'm not. Gonna... I think I'm going to ask them to quit. You'd be a great moderator. Anyway, um, yeah, there was the question there about homosexuality, and we talked about it. So sex is sex. Um, there's nothing. There's nothing in the Buddhist teaching specifically about homosexuality. 
um, that interestingly enough, I mean, a lot of the, the, the things about morality have to do with monks. So what is proper for a monk, which uh, sometimes is a bit quirky or a bit, bit um, specific because it, it it's it's in a specific you got this it's like an army you know the army has rules that would just seem crazy to to people not in the army but they need those rules in order to maintain discipline and order buddhism has similar rules so similar you know culture so one thing that's remarkable i mean worth remarking on is uh if a, if a, if a male monk touches a female with lustful intention it's a huge offense it's a serious offense they're put on probation but if a if a male monk touches a man with sexual desire it's a very very small offense it's still an offense i think but very very small it might not even be an offense i can't remember but the point is you can't control when sexual desire is going to arise um dealing with a mostly heterosexual society or, or, or group, um, these rules enforce some sense of, of order. Now, they, they're not perfect, and, and they fail when it comes to dealing with homosexuals. So we have this problem with allowing homosexual, homosexuals to become monks. Uh, I mean, the biggest problem, the most glaring problem, is that sometimes homosexual uh, individuals are attracted to the monastic uniform or the, the the brotherhood for for improper reasons you know I mean it would be equivalent to a heterosexual man um, being invited into a sorority I don't know I mean not exactly but I mean some people in in Buddhist societies uh, homosexual who have homosexual desires uh, enter into the monkhood for those reasons for the, with those desires um, not intending to free themselves from those desires but intending to indulge in them and so you get actually groups of homosexuals it's pretty awful uh, but more than that it it's just somehow defeat uh, defeating the purpose the whole idea of leaving behind the female gender or let's not say of going off into the forest a huge part of it i mean part of it was to live in poverty but a huge part of it was to live in celibacy why then why go off into the forest because living in celibacy is much easier when you're not surrounded by the objects of your desire in most cases women in some cases a man's desire is for other men well, then going off to live with other men is problematic. So we have those those kind of discussions. But that's not, all of that has to be separated from the actual dharma, the actual dhamma, the truth. And in truth, the only thing you could say about homosexuality potentially, and I've kind of shied away from saying it, but someone could suggest, I'm not suggesting it, that certain sexual acts are more coarse than others. So certain homosexual acts might be considered more um, intense in the defilement involved with them but even that i don't know how you could judge that or, or or why you would say that i think some people just find it offensive right so they think that they think well certain types of sexual acts are 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 normal and certain types of sexual acts are not um 
I'm not convinced. In fact, I don't, I don't, anyway, I'm not going to get into the describing different sex acts, but I'm not convinced on that personally. And still, no matter what, it depends on the mind. The most important thing is, is to focus on is the mind. If someone is to have, be sexually active, they should be clear that they're doing it for, for the best reasons possible. You know, obviously rape is, is absolute horrific. Um, doing it just for lust, like going to a prostitute, is pretty bad. But using it a means to express love for your partner, um, it's not really that harmful. You know, it's not something that you should be doing during a meditation course. But as a Buddhist, to do it, as long as you're keeping the five precepts, the potential to progress is still there. And it doesn't break the five precepts to have homosexual uh, romance. It doesn't so so that's it i mean unless you're talking about becoming a monk there was a someone asked me once can a homosexual become a monk and i said no absolutely not but a heterosexual person can't or is yeah uh, how she phrased it made it open for me i said a heterosexual man can't become a monk either you have to be to become a monk you have to give up sex entirely so uh, that that's the point of it and that's really the how the rules are. It's quite quite you know. Uh, it's great for us to be able to say that in modern times because this is a big question now, and a lot of religious people are against homosexuality. But Buddhism is, as far as I can see, on this subject clear. Now we have a a harder time with you know the subject of women, you know the the, the sexism in Buddhism, but um, homophobia is not doesn't seem to have any part there's even stories in the rules about homosexual acts that got the monks kicked out but just because they were sexual acts there was no differentiation between heterosexual acts and homosexual acts made by the buddha he did say something about people who are um, eunuchs or maybe hermaphrodites the word isn't quite clear but Tanisaro goes into detail about that, and there is something in, I think, the commentaries that discusses that idea. So the, the potential that someone who is a hermaphrodite may not be able to realize the Dhamma. Okay, so that's controversial. Figure that out for yourself. But specifically homosexuality and one's sexuality is, um, it's just a habit, you know. It has to do with the desire for pleasure. And we've built up this association with certain acts and certain objects as being pleasurable a, a, um, a woman who's who's sexually highly sexually active towards men and is then reborn as a man for whatever reason may still have attachment to men it seems like that might be a, a part of it like it's probably more likely for men to be reborn as men that's probably more likely but doesn't seem that difficult for a man to be born a woman or a woman to be born a man and if they have strong sexual desires that can influence it seems can influence their rebirth and change their brain the normal development of the brain to instead of being um, and i don't even know if it has to do with the brain but whatever however to have them be more inclined to desire for the same gender it's really probably as simple as that and therefore as innocuous as that still just sexual desire i mean what is a man and what is a woman 
in Buddhism, man and woman is one specific quality of rupa. There's nothing mentally male or female. The mind does not have the quality of mental or female. It's a physical quality. That's the only mention that's made in ultimate in terms of ultimate reality of gender. So that's um, on an ultimate level. What time can we meet at Montreal? Hmm. Let me see. This says departing Montreal. Why does it tell me that? How strange. Departing Montreal, it says at 4 30. Huh. Yeah. No, arriving at Montreal, 4 30. This is very strange. See, Google gets it wrong sometimes. Mm, give me a second. Okay, well, this says four. This one says four p.m. So I arrive in Montreal two fifteen, and get on the next plane at four. So if you can make it then. Um, I'll have passed through security, so really it's a bit inconvenient to actually meet anyone. If um, I can come out, I just have to go through security again, right? It's not an international flight. So let me know and uh, can meet up. As a teenager in the very materialistic American culture and with the accessibility of the Dhamma online, I often feel overwhelmed, even scared by the awesomeness of the practice and the Dhamma's implications. Is there a certain need for esotericism in the practice concerning age and meditative progress? You're making my brain hurt. Robin, you want to answer this one? Okay. I'm sorry. I, I sometimes don't realize that there's a second part to the question because... Um, Are we still going over the, yeah. the character limit? I think we might be. Yeah, it's still a pretty small character limit. So you sometimes have to divide up your, your uh, thoughts into two and then someone else will stick a couple of little lines in there in between. need for esotericism in the practice concerning age and meditative progress well first i don't remember which one esotericism is is that the one that lots of people know about or the one that not not many not people really, know about? only for those in internal exotericism okay ex, ex, out, outer you know, outer people esoteric is only for the initiated not many people would know about yeah I would say no. Good. Tell them why. Well, in the tradition that Bhante teaches, he he doesn't hold back. He teaches the you know the full thing. Um, in the introductory book is is everything that you'd need to know. In other traditions, you know there there is a lot that's well. I, I'm sure there's some things that are held back in in our tradition. 
but in other traditions, it's much more secretive. And to my knowledge, you're going to find out everything you know to get started in the practice just with basic instruction. You'll find out a lot yourself as you go through, but um, I don't believe there to be the secret, secret well, type of thing. I guess the, the point is that sometimes people aren't prepared to to, you know, you can't handle the truth kind of thing. So if you tell it, if you tell everyone the whole truth, I mean, there are cases of that um, in the suttas. The Buddha gave a gradual teaching. He taught uh, first charity, then morality. I started a series and I never finished it on these things. Buddhism 101. I never finished it. Sorry. Charity, morality, um, heaven, you know, the, the benefits of charity and morality, and then the disadvantages of clinging and the benefits of renunciation. Those five things are called the anupubhikatha, the gradual or the step-by-step -step teaching. And after teaching those, then he would only get, then only then would he get into the Four Noble Truths for many people, because it says that when the mind was pliant or pliable, right? once he knew that the person's mind was, was softened, you know, they had given up their suspicion, you know, they had started to trust what the Buddha was saying based on the sense of, of what they heard. And so when they were receptive, then he would teach them the core Buddhism. So there's, as opposed to saying there's a um, exactly esoteric, it's that there's a gradual. We would say it a little bit differently and say there's a, it's step by step. So is university esoteric because we don't teach it to kin people in kindergarten? No. But it's recognized that they, there's a lot of steps to go before they can understand the teachings being given in university. Something like that. So I think as Luke is saying, if I'm understanding it right, because he sees everything online, um, he feels overwhelmed. So that does make sense now. Where is the, I'm looking for this limit. There's a limit to, here we are. Limit is set at 400 characters. What should we set it at? Maybe just 600. How about a thousand? Is that too much? No, that works well. That way, all the uh, all the questions should be in one block. Chat. Now we have to do it here. So then, in that case, when someone's seeing, you know. All, all of the Dhamma online and, and being overwhelmed, what would you recommend, you know, as a way to kind of limit yourself in, in the same way that this gradual teaching would occur? Well, it's, I mean, you can, you can buy a university textbook. Doesn't mean it's going to be of any use to a person in kindergarten. Anyone, an eight-year-old can buy a university textbook. When I was in high school, I wanted, I wanted so much to be well-read and it wasn't, it wasn't even, uh, you know, there was no sense of wanting to look. I just really wanted to read um, the big books. So when I was in grade 11, I got a, a second-hand copy of Anna Karenina. Now, if you've ever read Anna Karenina, it's a very difficult book. I mean, it's not. For an adult, it's not a book. For, for me, 
I couldn't get past the first chapter. It was terrible. I would read it once and read it twice, but I did impress my English teacher. End up getting a very good grade. So I, it wasn't my intention. It, it honestly wasn't. I really wanted to read that book, but couldn't. Um, yeah, so I don't think it's such a big problem. It's just that it's not going to do you much good. If you really want the benefits of all the teachings that are online, you do need a structure. You need to take it step by step. You need to forget it all and learn it the right way. Learn it from a practical point of view. Okay, skipped one before. Focus on one thing off the cushion and choiceless awareness other time. Is that a good selection? These buzzwords, no choiceless awareness. I never use that term. I know people do. No, I wouldn't put it inside. See, you can't you can't box yourself in. You can't. I know we want to have uh, practice summed up. Like, what do I do? Sum it up. I mean, I guess th th we can, but the only way to sum it up is with something that's not really. I think not really um, satisfying as an answer, and that's just be mindful. You know, as long as you're being mindful, because the rest of it is variable. How you're going to be mindful, whether you're going to, you know, do a specific practice or whether it's going to be whatever comes, you can't you can't do it one way or another at a certain time. You or or you can't choose to do it one way or another you have to do it according to these circumstances according to the situation which will change so it's not dependent on whether you're on the pillow or off the pillow is there a reason for some knowledge to be kept secret about meditation progress perhaps in regard to the fact that monks are recommended not to disclose attainments no, that's nothing to do with it. Monks aren't to disclose attainments because it's bragging. It's just a bad form. It's um, And it's dangerous because it leads people to lie when they want to keep up. You know, if I started telling you about my attainments, or, you know, Robin started telling you about her attainments, and then you all fell in love with her and thought, wow, she must be a great teacher. And I would be like, man, now no one's paying attention to me. So I would lie and I would say, no, I'm also this and also this. So it leads to huge problems. And it's just, you know, that's you don't even have to explain it like that. It's just not proper uh, for one to disclose one's attainments. For monks, it's considered to be really bad form and it's against the rules. It's not a major rule. It's a major, it's a, a defeat rule if you if you lie about it. If I were to lie about my attainments, I would no longer, at that moment, I would no longer be a monk. But that happens. What is more important, in your opinion, to control your feelings or your thoughts? I don't have an opinion either way. They're not your feelings or your thoughts. Controlling them is not, not so important. Understanding them is most important, but understanding reality is most important. It doesn't matter whether it's your thoughts or your feelings. Understand it. 
best be full of wisdom needs no least no this no best be full of wisdom this no lust can set a fire now a man with wisdom filled was made a slave unto desire from the jatakas there's this poem best be filled with wisdom Bhante, what are your thoughts regarding political activism, particularly in the pursuit of social social justice and equality? Can I remain politically involved while still maintaining a good practice? Absolutely. Helping the world, helping other people. Ashoka is an example. He was a king and he did awesome things for people. The king of Thailand is an awesome example, how much he helped the people. You do it dharmically. I mean, getting involved with politics based on the Dhamma is an awesome thing. So definitely, you have a duty, in fact, as a member of society, unless you decide to become a monk, or unless as a lay person you decide to leave it. I don't know, it's interesting. Could you say it's a duty? Maybe it's not a duty, but... It's appropriate if you're living in society, if you are engaged in society, it's appropriate that you should work to benefit it, right? I mean, even monks work to some extent to benefit society, to a great extent, really. They do great things to help society. So if you could, for example, run for president or prime minister of Canada, we've got elections here as well, and uh, you had really good ideas and you were honest and sincere and that would be a very buddhist thing to do i mean it wouldn't be it wouldn't be uh deeply buddhist i mean deeply buddhist would of course of course to give up the world and not concern yourself because i guess the problem with it in the end is it has to be said that you can only fix things for a certain time things fall apart so if your intention is to fix the world, then you're deluding yourself. But if your intention is to do a good deed and to support your own mind and to make yourself a better person, to do the right thing, then I think getting involved with politics can be a big part of that. Because politics is, I mean, the word politics is a very interesting word. It has to do with the polity, the, the society. It's the machinations or the workings of the society. So if you work to make that run better, run smoother, run happier for people. You can benefit a lot of people. Like these guys in the in the Dhammapada or the Jataka. Can't remember. I think the Jataka. Saka. The story of Saka. Hmm. It's probably in both. Anyway, he was a um he was a man and he how he became the king of the god the king of the angels was doing awesome things for people they would get together of course society back then wasn't or whenever this was wasn't so organized so they would have this market and they would have a market in the field and everyone would would uh, find their spot in the market and set up their stall and sell their wares and so he went when it came time he went early and he tramped down a spot and made it all right and perfect for him. And just when he finished, someone came and took his spot. Come and someone saw, oh, this is a nice spot. And so they just went and and uh, set up their stall right where he had been 
in fixing it, in making it nice. And instead of getting angry at all, he was happy that this person had found a spot, and he went and made a new new place. And and he would do this, and and people would just take his spots until everyone had a spot. And it works like this. He did he did amazing things, well, not amazing, but actually quite ordinary things. But but amazing in the sense that they were so pure, and they were just for the purpose of helping his society. They built a pavilion, um, so that so they could sell things without getting rained upon and that kind of thing. And all of this was for the benefit of society. And then he ended up uh, becoming king of the gods. There were other things. He had he had vows, the seven or something. The, there's the number of uh, vows that he kept to never hold on to angry not anger, not to get not to not get angry, but to never let his anger last long. That was a vow he kept, and there are several of them. So the Buddha told the story of how he managed to become king. Is there some benefit in karma terms to help someone who acts well over someone who acts bad? Oh, I'm sorry. Is the same benefit in karma terms to help someone who acts well than right. someone who acts bad? Have you skipped some? You've skipped some. Did it? I think. No, no, you're right. You've you've answered all these, haven't you? <laughs> I'm behind. Sorry. Yes, okay. last one. I know I would say it's better karma to help someone who acts well. Because remember, by karma, it's the intention; it's your mind state. So, I mean, it, it, so it doesn't depend on the circumstances; it depends completely on your mind. But the thing is, when dealing with someone who is well behaved or well mannered or a nice person, you're much more inclined to help them. It's much more likely that great wholesomeness is going to come from it, and that you're going to do it with a whole heart, with a pure heart. If someone has bad intentions, you might doing it cringing, right? You might do it kind of holding your nose, so to speak, right? And there's that's certainly not um, generally not with as good of an intention. Now you could flip the tables and say, well, but there maybe is more of an impetus to help someone who's not doing well, who's got big problems. If someone's a real terrible person, then there might be more you know, if you could change them to become a good person. That would be a much greater thing. I think there's a general consensus that that's not nearly as easy as it seems. I mean, so yeah, it would be awesome. It would be an awesome karma if you could turn a bad person good, but it might take you many years or lifetimes to do it. Whereas helping good people, sometimes there are good people who simply for not hearing the truth are wasting away. This was why the Buddha was convinced to teach. <clears throat> because he saw that Really, there's no reason not to. People are just ready to hear the Dhamma. So he said, I'll teach for those people. <coughs> okay, I'm going to cut it off there, no? We've been here for an hour. Any more questions? Bring them to British Columbia. I mean, I'll be in British Columbia. Bring them tomorrow.
And if I'm not here tomorrow, you'd just say, well, he's probably traveling and wait because day after tomorrow, pretty sure I'll be online. But tomorrow should be as well. Okay, thank you. Oh, we lost the live stream. Hmm. Did we? Still says live on the screen. Wonder if there's two apps going. Yeah, no, it's lost. Oh, on the audio, I see. Yeah, don't know when we lost that. Oh well. Oh, that's okay. You still have, you still have the full YouTube. Just rambling anyway. Oh no, answering questions, right? You are. Okay. Well, okay. safe travels well, tomorrow, Bonte. Thank you. I'll see you tomorrow if all goes well. Thank you. Good night.